pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello everyone, it's Takuya here, and welcome back to the History of Everything podcast. Now, you probably have noticed here that it's just me saying this, not Gabby. Uh, the reason for that is that a couple people seem to have seen fit to leave rather negative reviews for the podcast that were going after her. Now, Gabby is a person that when she reads a lot of the stuff, she, she wants to make things better. She wants to do as much as she can specifically for our channel to help it. She cares a lot about it. But to some people, it appears that they didn't really see it that way and saw fit to leave rather negative remarks about her. And that has caused her to not want to really do the podcast anymore. I don't know whether or not that will change in the future. We'll see. If you do like my little tangents, if you do like our little discussion or humor or anything, please let us know. Because I know it is something that is more often that when there are negative comments that this can oftentimes outshine the more positive ones. But we do want to make sure that our podcast is fun, good, and great for everyone. And that people really do enjoy it. Those comments put me in a particularly bad mood. But I'm here to tell you all another story. One that, depending on how it is that I tell it or what it is that I do, who knows, maybe those individuals that left those comments will be happy with it. Before we get into today's podcast episode, I wanted to remind you that if you want to support this channel, if you want to support the podcast, whether it's YouTube, podcast, TikTok, any of the other platforms that I do, then you can do so through multiple ways. You can subscribe to us on Patreon. $1 a month gets you bonus episodes every single week, along with the fact that you can get access to a lot of these podcasts here without any kind of ads that are running over them. Or you can go and buy our coffee. We actually have our own little coffee that we work with uh, with one of these local roasters that is here in Kentucky, and it just, it is so good. It tastes like chocolate, and I love it. I absolutely love it. You can find the links to everything down in the descriptions below. So that is, again, Patreon, coffee, and oh, final thing, we have a History of Everything podcast YouTube channel. So go ahead and check out. And make sure to get this month's book club. Always click the link down in the description below in order to join the book club and get this month's book since we're going to have a podcast episode dedicated to it. But anyway, on to today's story. The Battle of Athens. So you're going to be a little confused. You're going to be a little bit confused when I say that. Because you're going to think, like, okay, Athens, we're talking Greece, right? Ancient Greece. No. We're talking Athens, Tennessee, in the little county of McMinn, Tennessee. You see, this takes place in the early 1940s. And in this town, it wasn't really a question of if you farmed. It was where you farmed. Everyone was farmers. It was a really rural community. So you have Athens, the county seat, 
which lay between Knoxville and Chattanooga along U.S. Highway 11, right? And this wound its way through eastern Tennessee. You're going to wonder, why am I talking about this little town? Well, that is because this town is one of the only places in the U.S. in its history that overthrew its own government. And this is going to be the story. So traveling along narrow roads planted with sides, urging them to see Rock City and get right with God, you would see all these different people who would gather on Saturdays beneath the courthouse elms to discuss politics, crops, and everything. It's a small town. It's a rural community, something around 7,000 people in Athens. And many of its streets were still unpaved. We're talking like dirt and gravel roads is the majority of these things. There were two big cities that were around 50 miles away that had not yet really begun their expansion. You know, we're talking about the larger cities of Knoxville and Chattanooga, which had not grown to the heights that they later would. So these farmers' lives were pretty simple. They were essentially unaffected by anything around them of what we would call the modern world. The majority of them didn't have electricity. The land, their families, religion, politics, and of course, being the fact that this is the 1940s, the talk of the war with World War II, that dominated pretty much everything with anyone's talk and thoughts. They were very simple people. They learned about God from the family Bible. They had a number of tiny chapels that were all along their dirt roads. And they had this one newspaper, the Daily Post-Athenian, that would tell them things about politics and war. But, of course, this being a small-town newspaper, it really chose to avoid any kind of intrigue or scandal or anything that usually you would find in some of the bigger cities. Now, regarding this little town, since the Civil War, a lot of the political offices in McMinn County had gone to the Republicans. But, in the 1930s, Tennessee began to fall under the control of Democratic bosses. Now, mind you, when I use the term Republican and Democrat, yes, technically speaking, it's the same name of the parties. But politics is something that evolves drastically over time, so things were not the same then as they are now. And that's not even talking about necessarily in terms of political beliefs or the whole political spectrum shift that people argue over. It's just the spectrum the scale of politics, things were very different then as to what they are now, just in general, among people and voting blocks. To the west, in Shelby County, E.H. Crump, the Memphis mayor who had been ousted during his term for failing to enforce prohibition, he fathered what would become the state's most powerful political machine. Crump eventually controlled most of Tennessee, along with the governor's office and a United States senator. In eastern Tennessee, local and regional machines developed, which, lacking the sophistication and power of Crump, relied instead on more intimidation and violence to control their constituents. You had people that didn't have nearly as much of the political savvy and suaveness that he did, so they used their own less-than-savory methods. In 1936, the system descended upon McMinn County in the person of one Paul Cantrell, who was the Democratic candidate for sheriff. Sheriff being a position that, unlike that of a simple police officer, is actually an elected position for anyone, maybe my European listeners, who are not aware. Cantrell, who had come from a family of money and influence in nearby Etowah, 
he tied his campaign closely to the popularity of Roosevelt, with this new administration coming in and rode FDR's coattails to victory over his Republican opponent. Now, fraud was suspected, and to this day, many Athens citizens still believe that the ballot boxes were swapped, but there is no proof. Over the following months and years, however, those who questioned the election would start to see that any of the suspicions that they had were probably right. The laws of Tennessee provided an opportunity for people of a more unscrupulous nature, let's put it that way, to prosper. Essentially, the sheriff and his deputies would receive a fee for every person they booked, incarcerated, and released. So the more human transactions, the more money they got. You can, um, you can probably see where that would be a little bit of a problem. A voucher that was signed by the sheriff was all that was needed to collect the money from the courthouse. Deputies routinely boarded buses passing through and just dragged sleepy passengers to jail in order to pay their $16.50 fine for drunkenness, whether or not they were guilty. It didn't matter. It didn't matter at all. Arrests ran as high as 115 per weekend. Now, the fee system was profitable, but of course, record keeping was required and the money could be traced. And for people who are doing things more or less illegally or not necessarily because it was legal, doing things while wanting to perhaps keep an era of, hmm, what's the proper word that I should use? They essentially, they wanted to hide what it is they were doing. And you couldn't really hide it very well through the fee system because, of course, all the record keeping. It was less troublesome for these guys then to instead collect kickbacks for allowing roadhouses to just operate openly. Cooperative owners would instead point out influential patrons and they would not be bothered. So if you had anyone who was particularly wealthy or good to the establishment, they weren't going to get in trouble. But anyone that was not, if they were pointed out by the owners of the establishment, then they were just going to get end up getting picked up and taken down. Prostitution, liquor, gambling, all of these things became so prevalent that it was common knowledge in Tennessee that Athens was simply wide open. There was no enforcement whatsoever of any of the ordinances. Or rather, when there was enforcement, it was simply enforcement for the purpose of targeting people for money. Almost like a mafia operation. I said mafia. A mafia. You know what I mean. A mafia operation is pretty much what it was. It was a shakedown. It was a quite literally a shakedown. And so encouraged by his initial success, Cantrell began what would become a 10-year reign as the king of McMinn politics. In the subsequent elections, ballot boxes were collected from the precincts and the results were, you know, counted in secret at the McMinn County Jail in Athens. Opposition poll watchers, if they went there to try and check and make sure that everything was okay, they would be labeled as troublemakers and were ejected from precinct houses. There was simply no one overseeing the actual validity of the election. And so the 1940 election sent George Woods, who was a bit of a bigger guy. He was a rather plump, more affable, friendly, Edwa crony of Cantrell. He was one of his base men. 
Woods promptly introduced an act to redistrict McMinn County, and it reduced the number of voting precincts from 23 to 12. So almost half. And it cut down the number of justices of the peace from 14 to 7. Of those seven, four were openly Cantrell men. So in this way, this meant that any of the justices, any of the people that were actually engaging with law and enforcement, they were going to have significantly fewer of them, and they could stack the ones that were there by having them make sure that they are the men of Cantrell. There wasn't there was less positions for perhaps reformists to be able to come in and change things. So McMinn County Court, which still was dominated by Republicans, directed the county to purchase voting machines to try and, you know, engage things in a proper democratic process. But the Cantrell Democrats, they countered by having Woods get a bill passed in Nashville that abolished the court and then sold the machines to save the county money. Because, of course, you know, that seemed to be the smarter thing to do in that case is just like, oh, no, we can't afford that. We'll just sell the machines and use the money for the city. And that way we can go back to the old system of just counting things manually with all of our machines or not machines, but like by hand. Sketchy stuff. Way more sketchy stuff. The Department of Justice showed records of investigations of electoral fraud in McMinn County in 1940, 1942, and 1944, all of which did not have any resolution. So during the Civil War, if we're going back a bit further from deep within secessionist territory, McMinn County had sided with the Union. This county itself had veered towards the Union while the territory around it went secessionist. And in 1898, she had declared war on Spain two weeks before Washington ever got around to it, even though, you know, they wouldn't actually be able to do anything. I mean, how could Cantrell have such absolute control over a county that was remarked as being very independent? It was famous for being well, for challenging the status quo and for doing things its own way or its own way. Well, one of the answers with how this could happen lies in the fact that, as I said before, with the newspaper, what was going on in the 1940s was the Second World War. Three thousand five hundred and twenty six young men, which is around 10 percent of McMinn's population, they went off to fight. And so most of those who were left behind were older, perhaps they were a bit more timid, they didn't really have the ability to fight back or the willpower to fight back. And this contributed to Control's machine growth by remaining silent. Still, as the war dragged on, people began to tell each other, well, just wait till the GIs get back. Things will be different then. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. That's just it. In the summer of 1945, veterans began to return home. 
And by 1946, the streets of Athens were overflowing with uniforms. They were just everywhere. And Contrell's forces, they didn't really care. They had controlled things for years. This was not going to be a big deal. These were the men coming back. They'd had control of things for a decade at this point. It wasn't going to be an issue. As the GIs arrived, they started coming back with their mustering out pay in their pocket. And of course, they're hitting the different beer joints and honky-tonks and all kinds of different places around Athens, which, of course, got a little bit wild. They were soldiers who had just been to war, and so they were starting to have trouble with law enforcement at that time because the law enforcement was seeing all these guys coming back with their payout and were seeing, oh, these are some easy targets for making some money. And so they started getting into this habit of picking up GIs and finding them heavily for pretty much anything. They were pretty much making a racket out of it. And so after long years of service, a lot of the hardcore veterans of World War II, they were used to drinking, having their liquor, having their beer, just being able to have fun and be able to be themselves without being bothered. And so when these things started to happen, the GIs started getting mad. And the more GIs that they arrested, the more that they beat up, the more angry that they got. And at last, the veterans chose to use their most basic right of democracy for which they had gone to war, the right to vote. In the early months of 1946, they decided in secret meetings to field a slate of their own candidates for the August election. And in May, they formed a nonpartisan political party. As the election approached, there weren't really many signs that any trouble was actually going to happen, though to the citizens of McMinn County, they believed that something absolutely was going to happen. There simply was too much at stake for both sides. Something had to go down, even if there were no signs of it actually occurring. The Daily Post-Athenian was, as it, I mean, we talked about in the beginning here, it was pretty quiet. It wasn't really going over any of the drama. The most significant news item that appeared on election eve at the bottom of the page was that VFW members in neighboring Blount County said that 450 veterans were ready to respond to any need in McMinn County. Quote, any need in McMinn County. They were prepared for something to happen. And of course, above that was a report that a guy by the name of Tony Pierce had killed a muskrat in his front yard. And that, 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 that's really it. The veterans fielded candidates for five offices. But interest in this case centered on the race for sheriff. That between Knox Henry, who had served in the North African campaign, and Paul Cantrell, who was once again running for re-election. Since the 1936 election, Cantrell had gone on to the legislature as state senator and installed Pat Mansfield as sheriff of McMinn County, a big, jovial, sometimes engineer for the Louisville and Nashville. Mansfield had done very nicely for himself during his term in office. His four years in sheriff had netted him an estimated one hundred and four thousand dollars, which, mind you, in the 1940s, that is a good chunk of change. But now in 1946, Cantrell was running for sheriff and Mansfield was running for state senator. In the final week, a flurry of advertisements appeared in the Post-Athenian. Cantrell talked about all the different accomplishments of the Democratic Party. Mansfield denied that two men who were arrested on July 30th with a shipment of liquor were actually deputies, even though they admitted that they had been there delivering election whiskey. 
Downtown merchants announced that all stores were going to be closed on Election Day in order to give employees a chance to vote. Although this had not been necessary in previous elections, the merchants were ready to set and follow the example of the mayor of Athens, Paul Walker, who would be vacationing on Election Day. Cantrell warned that the veterans had printed sample ballots with the intention of stuffing ballot boxes. The veterans offered a $1,000 reward for verifiable information about election fraud and repeated a slogan for weeks they sounded off again and again and again from car-mounted loudspeakers. Your vote will be counted as cast. Two days before the election, the GIs ran an advertisement in the Post-Athenian. It said, and I quote, These young men fought and won a war for good government. They know what it takes and what it means to have a clean government. And they are energetic enough, honest enough, and intelligent enough to give us good, clean government. A couple of pages further on, the Democrats had their own phrase or saying that they put, look at the facts, and you will vote for the Democratic ticket. The campaign fight is as old as the hills. It is the story of the outs wanting back in. Literally just a statement saying, hey, guys, look at the facts. Look, we're amazing. These guys were kicked out before and now they're just wanting back in. Don't don't buy into any of it. This is a ta- this is a tale that has happened time and time again. Just, just just trust us. Just trust us. OK, just trust us. That's literally what it's saying in the end. It's like literally just like trust us, guys. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. The next day, the paper reported that the veterans from Blount County had offered to come and help watch the polls. So Mansfield begins building an army of his own. He announced, It has come to my attention that certain elements intend to create a disturbance at and around the polls. In order to see that law and order is maintained, I have several hundred deputies patrolling the county. So he hired all of these deputies, all of these muscles from outside of the county and some from outside of the state. And these guys would crowd inside every voting precinct, and all of them would be armed and watching the election. So on August 1st, 1946, Election Day voters just lined up early in the largest turnout in local history. Joining them was some 300 of Sheriff Manfield's special deputies. Mind you, this is 300 deputies in a town that barely has 7,000 people. That is a remarkably high amount. Trouble began fairly early. At 9.30 a.m., you had this guy called Walter Ellis, who was a legally appointed GI representative at the first precinct of the courthouse. He was arrested and jailed for protesting irregularities. Sirens would wail all throughout the morning, and police cruisers were seen speeding towards the jail. GIs began gathering on Washington Street outside of L.L. Schaefer's jewelry store, which served as a kind of office for their campaign manager, Jim Buttram, who had seen action in Africa, Sicily, Italy, and Normandy, just all over things in the West. Well, I say the Western Front of Europe, specifically, and the North Africa campaign. Above the door read a sign, Phone 787 Jim Buttram. The number to which voters were to report any election fraud if they actually found it. Only after prolonged pounding did a harried Buttram cautiously open the door to his comrades, and more than 200 GIs just began to fill the small store. Things were not looking good. He had a very somber mood. And their leader told them they were in trouble. 
He showed them copies of two telegrams, one dated July 22nd, that had been addressed to Governor Jim McCord of Nashville, Tennessee, and the other to Attorney General Tom Clark of Washington, D.C. They requested assistance to ensure a fair election. Neither one had been answered. No one cared about this small little town and what it is that they were going through. So you had this other guy, Otto Kennedy. Now, he himself was not an ex-GI, but rather a political advisor to the veterans. They entered the office and announced that Cantrell had posted armed guards at each precinct. They all knew that this move was in preparation for the 4 p.m. poll closings when the ballot boxes was going to be moved to the jail for counting. A small group of veterans demanded an armed mobilization and called for a leader. Buttram declined. So did Kennedy. But he offered the rear of his SK garage and the tire shop across the street as a meeting hall for them to determine what to do next. The group crossed the street, they held a meeting, and they agreed that those who did not have weapons should get them and return as quickly as possible. By 3 p.m., most were back at SK and most were armed. At about this time, Tom Gillespie, who was this elderly black farmer from Union Road, he stepped inside the 11th Precinct polling place in Athens Waterworks on Jackson Street. Wendy Wise, who was one of Kentrell's guards, he told Gillespie, and I'm not going to quote it exactly because we're talking about something with a slur here, N-word, you can't vote here. And when Tom protested, Wise struck him with brass knuckles. Gillespie dropped his ballot, and he ran for the door. Wise then pulled out a pistol and shot him in the back as he reached the sidewalk. Now things were going to get really bad. The first shot of the day brought crowds streaming up Jackson from the courthouse, and Sheriff Mansfield's cruiser turned off College Street and screeched to a halt in front of the waterworks, and deputies then loaded the bleeding Gillespie into the car, gunshot wound and all. Mansfield ordered the precinct to be closed and posted four deputies outside to guard the waterworks and took Gillespie to jail. A dozen veterans from SNK then started up Jackson towards the waterworks, but they were unarmed. During the confusion, following the shooting, you had two GI poll watchers, Ed Vestal and Charles Scott, and they had been seized and held hostage inside the waterworks by Wise and another Cantrell deputy by the name of Carl Neal. When the veterans reached the waterworks, the crowd began taunting the armed guards. And then Wise's Neil stood in the window, watching the angry throng outside. Vestal and Scott plunged through the gleat glass windows and ran bleeding for the protection of the crowd. Wise stepped through the broken glass, waving his pistol, and several veterans then rushed forward but were quickly pulled back to safety. One of them shouted, Let's go for our guns! And they left for the SNK. In the meantime... Chief Deputy Bo Dunn and his men formed a cordon from the building to his cruiser, and the ballot box was carried out to the car. Wise told Dunn about the GI's threat, and the chief deputy then ordered two of his men to the GI headquarters to arrest those that Wise could identify. The rest of the deputies piled into the cruiser, which sped back towards the jail. So when these two other deputies reached the GI headquarters, they were disarmed and taken prisoner. So were two others that were later sent there as reinforcements. Because, you know, it's only a crowd of angry people with guns. You might as well send two guys in at a time. It doesn't really go over so well. A crowd begins to gather outside, and three more deputies come in with pistol drawn, only to be pummeled and beaten and then dragged inside. 
the crowd begins to demand the lives of the captives, and some of the veterans were inclined to agree, just ready to shoot them on the spot as traitors to the town, or even as traitors, just public enemies. This talk, of course, started scaring people like Otto Kennedy, and he left, vowing to have no part in anything with murder. And this seemed to calm people down. The crowd began to disperse, and most of the GIs left. Soon, a small nucleus of veterans was alone with the seven hostages. The veterans took the hostages to the woods, 10 miles out of town, but they didn't kill them. They beat them and then shackled them to the trees. A polling place for the 12th precinct was then set up back in the back of Dixie Cafe across Hornsby Alley from the jail, and this one was commanded by Minnis Wilburn for Kentrell. You had two other guys, Bob Harrell and Leslie Dooley, who had both lost an arm in North Africa, and they were assigned by the GIs for this location as the poll watchers to make sure that they weren't doing anything bad. Throughout the day, they had observed Wilburn letting minors vote, handing out cash to adult voters to get them to vote in favor of things. And at 3.45 p.m., when Wilburn attempted to allow a young woman to vote, despite the fact that she had no poll tax receipt and that her name did not appear on any registration list, Harold's patience gave out. And as Wilburn reached to deposit the ballot, Harold grabbed his wrist. Wilburn then slapped him across the head with a blackjack and kicked him in the face as he fell to the floor. Then he closed the precinct, ordered Hornsby Alley to be blocked at both ends, and with a procession of guards, he crossed the lawn to the jail with the ballot box and the GIs as captives. Things were getting worse. The Cantrell forces had calculated that if they could control the 1st, 11th, and 12th precincts in Athens and the one in Etowah, which was the largest of them, the election was theirs. They didn't matter what any of the others said. They wouldn't have to cheat. The ballot boxes from the Waterworks, the 11th, and Dixie Cafe, the 12th, were safely in the jail. The voting place for the first precinct, the courthouse, was barricaded by deputies who held four GIs hostage, with Paul Contrell himself and Etowah, or he had Etowah, under control. By 6 p.m., it seemed to be over. Everything seemed to be done. The GI headquarters was deserted. The crowds were not happy. They were quietly moving along the streets, not really knowing what was going to happen. It seemed, it seemed as though another election had simply just been stolen and that nothing could be done about it. At the Strand Movie Theater, which was across from the courthouse, the mark outside read, Coming soon, gunning for vengeance. Oh, and vengeance. Vengeance was coming. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. 
So you had this guy, Bill White, who had fought in the Pacific while he was still in his teens, and he comes home an ex-sergeant. And he's getting angrier and angrier and angrier as time is going on. At two in the afternoon, he gathered a group of veterans in the SNK saying, and I quote, you call yourselves GIs, you go over there and you fight for three or four years and you come back and you let a bunch of draft dodgers who stayed here where it was safe and you were making it safe for them push you around. If you don't stop this and now is the time and place, you people wouldn't make a pimple on a fighting GI's ass. Get guns. And that spurred them. In the early evening, White went to get the guns himself. He sent two GIs to get a truck, and along with a few other veterans, perhaps a dozen, he went down to the National Guard Armory, and there he said in a 1967 interview that he broke down the armory doors and took all the rifles, two Thompson submachine guns, and all the ammunition that he could carry. He loaded it up onto the two-ton truck and went back to the GI headquarters and passed out 70 high-powered rifles along with two bandoliers of ammunition for each one. By 9 o'clock, by 9 p.m., Paul Cantrell, Pat Mansfield, and State Representative George Woods, who was also a member of the Election Commission, and around 50 deputies were locked inside the jail and going through the ballot boxes. The presence of Mansfield and Woods meant that a majority of the Election Commission was on hand, so the tallies could simply be certified and validated right there on the spot. More deputies were still barricaded in the courthouse, but along the streets, there was no one. If the Cantrell forces had been a little bit more wary, they might have spotted some shadows that were slipping up the embankment directly across the street from the jail. Now, there are different opinions on exactly how what went down went down. And by that, I mean how it first started. White says that he was the one to call it out. He says that he shouted, would you damn bastards bring those damn ballot boxes out here or are we going to set siege against the jail and blow it down? Moments later, the night exploded in automatic weapons fire punctuated by shotgun blasts. Now, White says he claims that he fired the first shot and then everybody on his side started shooting. A deputy ran for the jail and then White shot him. Right then and there, he shot him, and the deputy wheeled about and just fell inside the jail. Bullets began ricocheting up and down White Street. He says that he shot a second man, that his leg flew out from under him, and he crawled under a car. The veterans bombarded the jail for hours, but Cantrell and his accomplices, secure behind red brick walls, they refused to surrender. As the uncertain battle dragged past midnight, the GIs started to have some uneasy second thoughts. They knew, they knew that they had violated local, state, and federal laws that night. And if Cantrell was not routed before his rescuers arrived, they might spend the rest of their lives in prison. Which, of course, is going to start a series of rumors. They thought, oh, the National Guard is on the way. The state troopers were there, or they were almost there. Birch Biggs and his gang are coming, which Biggs ran Polk County, which was way more ruthlessly run than Cantrell ran McMinn, but they would have been allies. So then reinforcements could come. If the veterans had known the truth, they probably wouldn't have uh, been as worried. George Woods had telephoned Biggs earlier that night for help, but Biggs wasn't there. His son, Broughton, ended up answering the call and said, do you think I'm crazy? And then just refused to help him at all. 
He was not going to go anywhere near a bunch of veterans with guns. Woods then promptly slipped out of town. The veterans, of course, were still eager to just end the battle. Some of them made Molotov cocktails, others went to the county supply house for dynamite, and the gasoline bombs proved to be ineffective. But at 2.30 a.m., the dynamite arrived. At about this time, an ambulance pulled around the north side of the jail. Assuming it was for the evacuation of wounded, the veterans let it pass. Two men jumped in, but then instead of returning to the hospital, the ambulance sped north out of town. Those men were Paul Cantrell and Pat Mansfield. They escaped. At 2.48 a.m., the first dynamite was tossed towards the jail. It landed under Bo Dunn's cruiser, and the explosion flipped the vehicle over its top, leaving its wheels spinning. Three more bundles of dynamite were thrown almost simultaneously. One landed on the jail porch roof, another under Mansfield's car, and the third struck the jail wall. The explosions rattled windows throughout the entire town. Leaves fell from trees. Debris scattered for blocks. And the jailhouse porch simply jumped out of its foundation. The deputies, barricaded inside the courthouse a block away, rushed onto the balcony eager to surrender. The jail's defenders then staggered from their ruined stronghold and handed the ballot boxes over to the veterans. With the control forces conquered, 10 years of suppressed rage simply exploded. Despite the fact that they had surrendered, the townspeople set upon the captured deputies, and but for the GIs, they probably would have killed all of them. Minnis Wilburn, who was a particularly unpopular and aggressive deputy, he had his throat slashed. Biscuit Ferris, Cantrell's prison superintendent, had his jaw shattered by a bullet, and Wendy Wise was kicked and beaten senseless. Joined by a number of their fellows, the GIs cleared the jail of the rioters and locked up their prisoners for their night. At dawn, the veterans slipped from the jail, made their way through the detritus of battle, and dispersed into what they hoped would be anonymity. Miraculously, there had been no deaths, but on August 2nd, a page one headline in the New York Times wrongly trumpeted the news, Tennessee Sheriff is slain in primary day violence. All day long, reporters with cameras and notebooks poured into town in order to photograph, to question, analyze, and write. And every newcomer passed the sign on Highway 11, Welcome to Athens, the friendly city. You know, despite all the fact that the violence was occurring. The victory of the veterans that night on August 1946 appeared at first to have settled nothing. The national press was almost unanimous in condemning the action of the GIs. In an editorial perhaps best reflecting the ambivalence of a startled nation that was shocked by this occurring, the New York Times concluded, Corruption, when and where it exists, demands reform. And even in the most corrupt and boss-ridden communities, there are peaceful means by which reform can be achieved. But there is no substitute in a democracy for orderly process. Of course, they're completely discounting at the fact that the democratic process was specifically what was corrupted because the ballots were being stuffed and forcefully removed. There was no actual way to commit to the democratic process because their complaints were being ignored and then the election was being stolen time and time and time again by stuffed boxes. The syndicated colonist Robert C. Rourke commented, There is very little difference, essentially, between a vigilante and a member of a lynch mob. And if we are seeking an answer to crooked politics, the one that the Athens boys just propounded sure ain't it. End quote. 
Commonweal cautiously compared the battle to the American Revolution, then went on to say, nothing could be more dangerous, both for our liberties and our welfare, than in the making of the McMinn County Revolution into a habit. Which, to a degree, is agreeable. You do have to be exceptionally careful. When violence is used in this, historically, historically speaking, it tends to get very, very out of hand. That is usually what will end up happening. In the early days of August 1946, a power vacuum existed in McMinn County that easily could have turned into anarchy. Armed GIs patrolled the streets that were still very tense with rumors that Mansfield had an army that was poised to reclaim Athens. Hundreds of men were issued permits to carry weapons, and machine guns on rooftops guarded the approaches to town. Several times, groups of veterans attempted, they rushed to barricade roads, and occasionally they terrorized innocent travelers in their attempts to thwart an invasion that never actually came. On August 4th, Pat Mansfield telegraphed his resignation as sheriff of McMinn County to Governor McCord and requested that Knox Henry fill his unexpired term, which would end on September 1st. Henry was appointed immediately, and the next day, State Representative George Woods returned to the county under GI protection to convene the election commission and certify the election. A cheer rang out in the courthouse when Woods rose as the canvas ended and announced that Knox Henry was elected sheriff by a vote of 2,175 to 1,270. On August 11th, 1946, the five GIs that were elected to office in McMinn County announced that they would return to the county all fees in the excess of $5,000. Elsewhere in Tennessee, E.H. Crump and his machine were finally on their way out with the election of Governor Gordon Browning and a young United States Senator, Estes Kefauver. For a full year afterward, the national press seized upon the most insignificant news from Athens as evidence of the veterans' lawlessness. There was indeed, remarkably, very little criminal prosecution in the wake of that violent night. Only one man had charges brought against him, Wendy Wise, the deputy who shot the old black farmer, Tom Gillespie, and he drew a sentence of one to three years. As for the larger results of the Athens Rebellion, the GIs universally hailed the return of independent voting to the community and the election of fine people to lead it. The national press continued to show interest in what happened, but generally speaking, the accounts were rather negative or didn't really amount to anything. Finally, on the first anniversary of the violent election, the Times reported, Today it appears that this political coalition of World War II veterans for direct action in community affairs, which may at the time be regarded as a factor likely to develop nationally in the post-war period, was purely a local phenomenon in which veterans' participation was incidental. With this, the epilogue, the press kind of turns away from tiny Athens. They don't really care about it anymore. It just kind of was nothing more than a blip on the radar that kind of blew up, and then afterwards, they didn't really pay attention to it as much, just hoping that similar incidents would not be happening over the rest of the country. Knox Henry served two terms as sheriff of McMinn County and was succeeded by Otto Kennedy. Paul Cantrell, after seeking temporary asylum in Chattanooga, he returned to Etowah and continued to operate the bank there with his brothers. They all are dead now, as is Jim Butchman. Otto Kennedy still lived there in Athens, at least for a while, 
Pat Mansfield returned secretly to Athens on August 8th in order to just resign his membership on the election commission, and he met with Otto Kennedy for two hours, apparently with no ill feeling on either side, and then announced, and I quote, I'm through with politics for good. It'll sure mess you up sometimes. I'm going back to railroading. And over the course of pretty much 40 years, nothing really changed much in Athens. It maintained a very sleepy demeanor. Of course, they got a new courthouse, you know, because the old one burned down during renovations in 1964. But other than that, all that much. I mean, farmers would not really gather anymore into the square. There wasn't really a place for them. An effort at downtown renovation just didn't really do much in comparison to what you would see in the larger cities. Of course, they did get a new jail, you know, because the old one got blown up with dynamite, because that is indeed a thing that happened. But that's really it. Not much happened. It was just this tiny, crazy, wild moment that just exploded into national news from a small town. And I kind of like that. I, I kind of like how wild of a story that is and how effective that was. There's another one that I would want to cover about a coal mining town in West Virginia that almost got help from the Soviet Union. I think I'm going to cover that story here pretty soon. But anyway, guys, I'm going to leave you all here. Thank you to everyone who has listened. I hope that you enjoyed the story, even though Gabby was not here to help me tell it or to react to certain things in it. If you want to leave a review to let me know what it is that you think and how it is you feel about it and about her, let me know. The whole thing is just kind of shaking me as I'm trying to create and do all this. I'm hoping that in the future that I can do more or if there's other guests or other things that I need to do because I want to make sure that this podcast is good for everyone. I hope that you all have a good rest of your day. And please remember to support this podcast through Patreon, through going and getting coffee, through getting the this month's book from the link down in the description for the book club. Besides that, have a good rest of your day. And goodbye. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.